You know, one of the reoccurring themes in 1 John is love. How fitting is it that God has us on this Valentine's Day where love is all talked about, that we today in our scriptures will be talking about love. I read one commentator that said, John comes back to his main themes of love, obedience, and truth, kind of like a spiraling staircase. That was a neat picture. We're, we're kind of back at the same spot, but at the same time, we're looking at it from a different perspective. It's not repetition. It's the same topic from a different and deeper point of view. John is very fond of using contrast and comparison as a way of teaching. We like to use it too, you know. Often we try to describe how tall someone is. We use that to compare and contrast with somebody who's smaller or somebody who's taller. We say how fast somebody is by comparing and contrasting them to someone who is slower or faster. A great way to understand things is to compare and contrast them. John really likes to use this as a teaching method to teach theological and spiritual truths. So we'll just highlight a few here. Uh, in um, uh, 1 John 1, 6 and 7, he, co- he compare and contrast walking in darkness to walking in light. In 1 John 8 and 9, says, he compares those who say we have no sin to those who confess their sins. In um, chapter 2, 3 and 5, he's, he compares keeping God's commands to those who don't keep God's commands. In 2.15, those who love the world to those who love the Father. In 2.19, they to us. In 2.22, antichrist to Christ. In 2.23, to deny Christ, to confess Christ. In 2.28, to be confident at his coming or to be ashamed at his coming. In 3.3-7, those who regularly commit sin to those who do what is right. In 3.10, children of the devil to children of God. And then in our passage today, he's going to compare and contrast those who hate their brother to ones who love their brother. One of the great things about John, he's not subtle. He's not nuanced. It's not gray. It's clear. It's precise. It's black and white. So please, if you haven't opened your Bibles there yet, please... Turn in your Bibles to 1 John, chapter 3. We'll be starting our passage today at verse 11. 1 John 3, 11. For this is the message that you have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. We should not be like Cain, who was of the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his own deeds were evil and his brother's righteous. Do not be surprised, brothers, that the world hates you. We know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. Whoever does not love does not, abides in death. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer. And you know no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us. And we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, 
but in deed and in truth. Father, we pray now in these precious moments that we have together that your Holy Spirit would take these holy words and apply them, challenge us, move in our lives. So, Lord, that we, as we leave this building this day, through this communion time, through the worship, through the sermon, that we might leave here today more conformed to the image of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. In the last phrase of verse 10 in chapter 3, John signals to us he's going to be talking about a new subject. He says, Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. See, John is now going to talk about what a person looks like, what a person looks like who does not love his brother, and what a person looks like who does love his brother. The first thing that John does as he starts off his topic is to give the command, the summary truth of what he's got, the foundation of the teaching. He says there in verse 11, For this is the message that you have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. Love is the initial command. Just to make sure that his readers know, uh, you know where his teaching comes from, he, he reminds them. It comes from the very beginning. From the very beginning, God's message has been love. Jesus quoted as the greatest commandment from Deuteronomy chapter 6, written by Moses. Love. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Then Jesus quotes the second greatest commandment from Leviticus chapter 19. Moses wrote that. Love. Love your neighbor as yourself. Then in the upper room, on that very night of his betrayal, Jesus summarizes one of the main teachings of his. Love. 1 John 13. He said, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also ought to love one another. By this all people will know you are my disciples, if you have loved for one another. You see, love is the initial. Love is the original. Love is the supreme. Love is the greatest commandment given by our God. God is love. So if the Holy Spirit is doing anything in our lives, one of the first things He is doing is teaching us how to love God and how to love others. As a matter of fact, the very first in the list of the fruit of the Spirit, the very first and strongest evidence of the Holy Spirit's work in our life is love. Jesus said in John fifteen twelve, This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. And he said in fifteen seventeen, These things I command you, so that you will love one another. Romans twelve ten says, Love one another with brotherly affection, Outdo one another in showing honor. Romans 13, 8. Oh, no one anything except to love each other. For the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. Galatians 5, 13. For you were called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. Ephesians 5, 1 and 2. Therefore be imitators of God as beloved children, and walk in love as Christ loved us 
and gave himself for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. 1 Thessalonians 3.12 And may the Lord make you increase and abound in love for one another and for all. 1 Thessalonians 4.9 Now concerning brotherly love, you have no need for anyone to write to you. For you yourselves have been taught by God to love one another. Hebrews 10.24 But let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works. 1 Peter 4, 8, Above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. 1 John 3, 23, And this is His commandment, that we believe in the name of the Son, Jesus Christ, and love one another, just as He commanded us. 1 John 4, 7, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God. And whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. 1 John 4.11 Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. Did you catch a, a theme running through these verses? It's amazingly, even glaringly obvious that God thinks Loving one another is extremely important. But we must remember, we can only love one another, we can only put our love in action because God loved us first. We can only love with God's kind of love because God is working His love in and through us. The goal of Christians is not to muster up our feelings of love and to act out of some kind of simple philanthropy. No, the goal of two followers of Christ is to dig deep into the truth of God's love and to have that truth, His love, change our lives so that then we can truly love one another. Tertullian, a 2nd century church theologian and apologist, wrote that uh, about the early church under Roman rule that had developed this reputation. The Romans were astonished by one main thing. He reported them saying, see how they love one another. It was the demonstrable love, a a love that no one had ever seen before, a love in action of those early Christians, a love that reflected the love that they had received in Jesus Christ. Towns, regions, nations, continents were brought to see how much God loves them by how those early Christians loved them. But it wasn't their love that changed the world. It was God's love through them. Church, this is the message from the beginning. Love. Now John, in his wonderfully practical focus, makes this amazing truth And he applies it to us. First, we see how not to love. Verses 12 through 15. It seems to me that as John is writing about loving one another, and even more specifically there in verse 10 about loving your brother, and when he starts wanting to do his comparison and contrasting, to do his teaching about true love, about brotherly love, about loving one another, the first thought that comes to his mind is the negative example of the very first brothers. It's an incredibly sad and heart-wrenching story. 
The count is recorded for us in Genesis chapter 4, starting at verse 3. The scripture says, In the course of time Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground. And Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering, but for Cain and his offering he had no regard. So Cain was very angry and his face fell. So the Lord said to Cain, Why are you angry? Why is your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is for you, but you must rule over it. Cain spoke to Abel, his brother. And when they were in the field, Cain rose up against his brother Abel and killed him. Then the Lord said to Cain, Where is Abel, your brother? He said, I I don't know. Am I my brother's keeper? And the Lord said, What have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. See, Cain was going through the motions of placing an offering to God. But Abel gave of the best. Abel gave out of worship. Abel's offering was accepted, but Cain's was not. It's not that it wasn't accepted because of the type of the offering. It was accepted because of the heart of Abel and not accepted because of the heart of Cain. See, sin was crouching at the door of his heart. Like so many have done, like in many ways all of us have done, rather than rejecting sin and temptation and choosing God, he opened the door for sin to ravage his heart. And he rejected God. Abel is dead. Cain is banished. And Adam and Eve are left devastated. Our passage today says that Cain murdered his brother out of hatred, jealousy, and and resentment, and in line with the very works of the evil one. John uses this horrific story to teach two lessons about love. First, in verses 13 and 14. Abel is a picture of the true followers of God, and Cain is a picture of the world that hates the true followers of God. Verse 13 says, Do not be surprised that the world hates you. It could be translated, Stop being surprised. The story of Cain and Abel is tragic, but the story of Cain and Abel is common. We should not be surprised that evil hates righteousness. We should not be surprised that the evil one is attacking the followers of God. We should not be surprised that the world persecutes, murders, and hates committed followers of Christ. It has been this way from the very beginning. And it will be this way to the very end of days. Until Jesus sets up his kingdom. We should not be Surprise. But we should, as true followers of Christ, be loving. One commentary summarized verses 13 and 14 this way. Do not be surprised or caught off guard when people of this world, people like Cain, hate you. It is their nature. However, don't you be like Cain. Don't descend to their level. Resist the urge to return hate with hate. Murder with murder. 
The gospel has changed you. And love is at the heart of the gospel. Where the gospel has taken root, love will be the natural fruit. So how are we supposed to respond to the canes in our world? How are we supposed to respond to the hatred? We're not supposed to be surprised. We're supposed to respond with love. The second application of the story of Cain and Abel is in verse 15. It says, Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer, and you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. Now, John is obviously not teaching here that if you commit murder, that you somehow can't be forgiven. That somehow you're eliminated from eternal life. That somehow God's grace is not big enough. No way. God's grace is so much greater. God's grace is so much stronger, so much more powerful than any and all sins combined. John is actually going much, much deeper. He is teaching that it's not just the action that is the sin, the murder. It's also the heart that is the sin, hatred. Guess who said the exact same thing? Jesus, in the Sermon on the Mount, in Matthew 5. He said, you've heard that it was said of, to those of old, you shall not murder. And those who murder will be liable to judgment. But I say to you, everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says you fool will be liable to the fire of hell. Both John and Jesus are clear. An attitude of hatred in your heart is equivalent to having murder in your heart. John is saying that those whose lives are characterized by hatred, are characterized by this anger that Jesus is talking about, are characterized uh, by hatred, which is equivalent to murder. The people who are characterized this way give evidence that they have never been born again. Simply put, no love, no life. See, love and hate are moral and spiritual opposites. Both cannot reside at the same time in the same heart. If hate rules your heart, then God, who is love, is not ruling your heart. Now John turns the comparison and contrast to the positive and he describes what true biblical love is. Next we see how to love. Verse 16 says, by this we know love. We know it. That he laid down his life for us. And we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers. Well, perhaps you remember the popular 1970s sitcom called All in the Family. Remember Archie Bunker and Edith and Gloria and Michael, affectionately called Meathead. So in this scene, Archie's son-in-law, Michael, and his wife, Gloria, are in the kitchen. Michael's eating a sandwich and Gloria's baking cookies. And Gloria asks him, Michael, do you love me? Yep, he manages between bites. Would you give up your life for me, she asks, right after I finish the sandwich. Ma saw this movie on TV. It takes place in the desert. The husband gives up his life so his wife can live. I was just wondering if you'd do the same for me. Sure, honey, if we're ever in the Sahara Desert together, you have my life. You got any pickles? Gloria sighs and says, Michael, I'm serious. I mean, if we were stranded in the desert, if we just had enough money for one, what would you do? I'd flip you for it. 
Gloria is visually exasperated as Michael adds, Well, honey, what do you want from me? It's a very difficult question to answer. Not many people know how they would react in a life and death situation. Okay, okay, forget the desert, she said. Let's say we're out in the ocean and there's a shark coming at us. Would you swim in front of it to save me? How big is the shark? It's a big shark. It's a man-eating shark. Well, then maybe you should swim in front of it to save me. Why? Well, because it's a man-eating shark and not a woman-eating shark. At this point, Gloria's had about enough. I'm just trying to find out how much you care for me. I care for you, honey. I care for you. If you cared for me, you'd let me finish the sandwich. She grabs the sandwich out of his hands and looks glaringly at him. Michael, we're lost in the mountains. This is the only food, our only chance for survival. Would you give me this sandwich? I wouldn't have to. You'd take it from me. (laughs) Michael, I just want to hear you say you'd give up your life for me. Would you say it? And Gloria angrily walks out of the kitchen into the living room, and Michael follows her. She looks back at him saying, just say that you'd lay down your life for me. This is ridiculous. How did we get to this point? Just say the words, Michael. Michael finally, exhausted by the whole conversation, says, all right, all right. I'd lay down my life for you. Now, it's kind of a funny, silly, crazy story. It shows how fickle and selfish and all that we can be. But folks, I want to do something right now. I want to pivot. I want to pivot like John would to an infinite contrast. I want to pivot right now to the most immeasurable comparison. I want to point out something that is overwhelmingly true, that is amazingly, superlatively beautiful. Jesus actually did that for you. Think about that. Jesus actually did that. He actually laid down his life for you and for me. Jesus, the Son of God, the creator of all things, the most perfect and loving, Jesus willingly and wantingly with salvation of mankind in his heart and mind, laid down his life for us. No negotiations, no caveats, no limitations, just full-out, sold-out love, just full-out, sold-out sacrifice, full-out, sold-out selflessness, solely for the benefit, for the forgiveness of those who come to him, you and me. Jesus actually did it. He actually laid down his life for us. And while we were still enemies, Christ died for us. While we were still lost and unworthy, while we had nothing to offer, Jesus laid down his life for us. Is there any greater truth? Is there any greater love? Is there any greater motivation to love others? Is there any greater inspiration for self-sacrifice? Beloved, we have been so wonderfully, so fully, so amazingly loved. Love at its core is about self-sacrifice and self-substitution. I've never noticed that there's a connection between John 3.16 and 1 John 3.16. John 3.16 is the, the demonstration of God's love. For God so loved us that he gave us his Son. 1 John 3.16 is the explanation of that love. By this we know love. 
that Jesus laid down his life for us. The Bible says if you want to see love, look at the cross. The Bible says if you want to show love, look at the cross. The Bible says if you want to know love, look at the cross. The Bible says if you want to live love, look at the cross. If we really understood the magnitude of what Jesus did for us on the cross, if we really understood the implications for our life now and for our eternal life, we wouldn't simply feel obligated to show gratitude. We wouldn't be merely willing to be thankful. We would abound in overflowing joy to present our whole lives to God as a living sacrifice in grateful worship. So stop and think and evaluate. What's one area in your life, what's one thing in your life you could change so that you could better comprehend, so that you could better apprehend the magnitude of the truth that Jesus laid down his life for you. Warren Rearsby said, self-preservation is the first law of physical life, but self-sacrifice is the first law of spiritual life. So as verse 16 says, one of our responses to Jesus' self-sacrifice is for us to sacrifice ourselves for others. But most often in our lives, we'll never have an opportunity to do that. Which makes it really easy to say that we'd be willing to lay down our life for another. We could easily say, just like Michael eventually did in that story, I'll lay down my life for you. But talk is cheap. Talk is cheap as a modern axiom, and it's, it's also a biblical concept. It's a John concept. Just saying that you are willing to do something is not the same as actually doing something. John says in verse 17, But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? There's an answer to that question. It doesn't. That's the power of rhetorical questions. Because the answer is obvious. The love of God does not abide in someone who closes their eyes, who closes their heart to the needs of people around them. A true follower of God will, because of all that Jesus has done for them, because of all that Jesus has given to them, give to others. A sold-out, committed follower of Jesus will, by necessity, use whatever skills, gifts, abilities, times, and treasures that they have, giving them to God, offering them as service to God, so that He can use them for His purposes, for His service, for others. In the book of James, it puts this biblical teaching this way. If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, Go in peace. Be warm and filled. Without giving them the things they needed for the body, what good is that? So also, faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. Dead faith is dead love. It's incongruous. It's incompatible for a true follower of Christ to say, I would lay down my life for my brothers and then not help them in their time of need. John is getting right down here. He's being very practical, very real, very black and white. 
right where the rubber meets the road. He's given us some very basic and practical applications of what it actually means to live a life of self-sacrificing Christian love in our everyday lives. What does it look like? John's giving us a picture. We all have to remember our hearts control our hands. Our hearts control our money. Our hearts control our time. Where our heart is, is where we will sacrifice. Verse 18 is the challenge. Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. What an awesome command. See, love is so much more than saying words or having an impressive speech, right? The beginning of the great love chapter, 1 Corinthians 13, 1 says, If I speak in the tongues of men and angels, but do not have love, I'm a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. If you're just talking about love, all you're doing is making noise. But instead of just talking about self-sacrificing love, we are challenged to do it. To live it. John's not simply talking here about being philanthropic. It's so important here. The focus here is not about charitable, human, humanitarian generosity. John doesn't just say, let us not love in word or talk, but in deeds. He has a very important couple words. But he says, in deed and in truth. See, philanthropy is great. But God's not called Christians to be simple humanitarians. God has called us to the truth. For the Christian, the focus is not just the generosity of our time and talents and treasures. No, it is the self-sacrificing generosity that is in the truth, that is sharing the truth, that is reflecting the truth, that is pointing to the only true one. Remember that account of Jesus in Mark chapter 12, where Jesus is sitting down opposite the treasury, watching the people put in the money in the offering box. Many rich people walk by, I'm sure, so that everyone could notice, dropping in their large sums. And then this poor widow walks by, right? Just two small copper coins, which make a penny. And he calls his disciples over to him, and he says, Truly, I say to you, this poor widow has put in more than all those who are contributing to the offering box. For they contribute out of their abundance, but she, out of her poverty, has put in everything she has and all she had to live on. See, God cares both about our actions and our motives. God's always looking at our hearts. He's always challenging us on the heart level. God is never impressed with the amount. He's never impressed with the amount or uh, the amount of time, the amount of treasure. It's always focused on the heart. God is looking at our hearts, at our motives, at our intentions. So the challenge for us today is to not give more time. The challenge for us today is not to give more money. That's philanthropy. The challenge for us today, just like that widow is to give it all. Do you see that? The challenge for us today is that God wants it all. He wants all of our time, all of our money, all of our talents, all of our treasure, all of our future. 
The challenge for us today is not to respond better to the needs of people around us, but to respond better to Jesus. Because He gave us His all. He laid down His life for us. He gave us everything. He gave us life. He gave us eternal life. He gave us His sinlessness to cover our sin. He gave us His righteousness so that we could stand before God accepted. He gave us His unsurpassed, self-sacrificing love. Our challenge today is to respond to that. Our challenge today is to give Him the priority in every area of our life. Our challenge today is to look right square at our loving Savior Jesus and proclaim Him as the Lord and Savior, the King and Ruler of our lives who gets to make the calls and the shots of our lives. Our challenge today is to surrender it all to Him, to give it all for Jesus to use our lives as He sees fit. But drops of tears can ne'er repay the debt of love I owe. Here, Lord, I give myself away. Tis all that I can do. Let's pray. Father, now here on this day, as we are challenged with the immense, undeserved gift of Jesus Christ, as we are challenged to respond to that, Spirit, we pray you would move within us. You would, you would, you would give us insight and wisdom on, on ways that we could, in our lives, in our everyday, daily lives, respond to the incredible reality that Jesus laid down his life for us. And so we ought to lay down our lives for others that we would respond to that. In Jesus' name, amen.